Opinions heard in the preceding program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of Cumulus Media or WJR Radio. Good evening. You're listening to the Mackinac on Michigan show on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jarrett Skurup of the Mackinac Center. This show is brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism. With Michigan's primary election just weeks away, tonight we'll be talking to Republican gubernatorial candidate Garrett Saldano. We're also bringing in Caitlin Buss, the assistant editorial page editor at the Detroit News, to give us a breakdown on where the big races stand. Jimmy Green, the head of the Associated Builders and Contractors, also joins us to chat about the primary election. And Jason Hayes of the Mackinac Center joins us to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court case that rebuked the APA for overstepping its congressional authority and what that means for other federal agencies. We'll be right back after a brief break with more of the Mackinac Michigan Show on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac Michigan Show, brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jaris Corp with Mackinac Center. And before we get started, we're giving away a free window decal today. It's a small white sticker shaped like the state of Michigan. Put it on your water bottle, your laptop, get creative. Just text us to WJR at 50155. We'll drop one in the mail for you. So just a couple of weeks out, Jarrett, from primary day in Michigan on August 2nd. We're going to be focused a lot on that on this show. And we're bringing in our first guest, gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side, Garrett Soldano, joins us. Garrett, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. So you're from the west side of the state, uh, outside of Kalamazoo. Tell our listeners here around southeast Michigan about why you're running to seat, unseat Gretchen Whitmer. Well, I tell you what, if you would have came to me two years and three months ago and said, hey, Garrett, you're going to be running for governor in the state of Michigan, I probably would have laughed you right out of the room. Never wanted anything to do with politics. Um, And just like many Michiganders over two years ago, we were waiting for somebody in a position of authority, an elected official, somebody in a position of power to represent us when they start taking away our constitutional freedoms, our sacred values and citizens' rights. And kind of straw broke my camel's back is when the governor extended that state of emergency and was telling us what we could and couldn't buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't buy paint and mulch, you'll die of COVID. God forbid you touch that gas station pump handle, you'll die of COVID. And now we're dying at the pump for different reasons. But on April 9th, when she extended that state of emergency, I started this Facebook group called Michiganders Against Excessive Quarantine, which grew to 300,000 people in three days. So literally in three days, a movement was born. And as the leader of this movement, it was my job to direct this energy, this passion, this frustration and anger into a force to be reckoned with. And that's what we were able to do. Um, We did calls of action to tell our legislature not to stand or extend the state of emergency. Um, After Facebook took us down at the end of April, we we co-founded Stand Up Michigan, started holding protests and rallies throughout the state. We spearheaded the Unlock Michigan campaign to take away the 1945 law. But what got me involved for running for governor is when the governor did that second lockdown, when she canceled our children's experiences, their opportunities and dreams in November 2020, um, hammered our restaurants down to 25 percent capacity again, even though Indiana, Ohio and Wisconsin were fully open. So that's when I said I needed to do something. And my wife and I and the rest of my family got together and said, OK, we're going to run for governor. Great. Um, so obviously, yeah, the, the lockdowns were a big start for, for you launching this. Um, fairly successful um, overall if you if you think about uh, winning the Supreme Court case that got rid of a lot of them the governor re puts them in place but after we kind of get this third wave really for the last 
a year and a half now, I guess the governor's almost completely backed off, um, doesn't really want to talk about that issue. Are you able to still connect with people? Um, have you had to do you shift to talk to other policy issues outside of the lockdown issue? Um, what are you delivering and, and talking to people about what you're going to bring? Yeah, absolutely. So lockdowns aren't the issue anymore. That's just how this movement started. And the question was, you know, what what made you decide to run for governor? <laughs> right. So right. lockdowns and COVID lockdowns and all that stuff. That's a thing of the past. The things that are most on people's mind today is obviously the top three being around the state uh, over 40,000 miles we put on our car is obviously the inflation economy, schools, and immigration. And so those are the top three things on the Republican side that people are most concerned with. And so those are the policies that we have uh, been talking about and given answers and solutions to our constituents on what we're going to do to make Michigan the powerhouse of the nation. So, Garrett, this is Kelly Cobb again. It sounds like schools are one of the biggest things that people are focused on right now. Can you go in depth about, you know, we have absolutely abysmal uh, data on on student graduations, on test scores. Uh, You know, it's in the 40s on the successes at the high end in math, reading, civics, coming out of specific grades. Can you go into specifics? What are some of the big, big changes we need to make in Michigan to make our kids' education the education that they deserve? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, I think we're 32nd in reading right now, Mm -hmm. and they're starting to tie our competitiveness with business to our educational outcomes, which is horrible right now. And so we obviously have to put an emphasis on our children's education and what we're doing now more than ever. And I want to go back to the lockdowns. We put our kids in the mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. And with this mental health crisis that these kids are in, we continue to confuse them with CRT, with its gender and sexual theory, with all this other hot garbage they're trying to put into these kids' minds at a very young age. And look, you know, let's get back to the basics, math, science, reading them. I mean, if you want to teach my kids anything, you t- teach them those things, critical math, critical reading skills. You know, you can teach my kid how to critically think, but you have no right to teach my kid what to think. And now they're pushing this gender and sexual theory garbage on these young kids. Um, and it's just it's getting out of control. And that's what people want now. It's just common sense. Um, we need to quit confusing these kids. I mean, if you think about it, gentlemen, you can't talk about sexuality in the workplace because you'd be sued for sexual harassment. But now we're saying it's essential for to teach this garbage into the kids. And so that's why you're seeing so many um, parents and grandparents, not only in the state of Michigan, but throughout our country that are standing up against these school boards and they're taking back to schools. Um, And so that's kind of why I have been leading this charge with this is, you know, people want leadership now, but we must continue to inspire and activate Michigan's greatest asset. And that is the people, that is the parents to inspire positive change at the local level. So we need to put an emphasis on that and we need to continue to do that. And that's how we get our schools back. On the economic front. Yeah. I saw recently Michigan, we're one of just a handful of states that still has not recovered the jobs that we lost Mm -hmm. um, during COVID and a lot of those uh, that was associated with with us locking down uh, a lot more than other states. Um, what kind of economic policies do you think the state should pursue? What would you do as as governor with your first budget? What what would you push? Well, what we need to do, I mean, there was a mass exodus of people leaving the state of Michigan even before COVID. You know, COVID was just more gasoline on the fire of the problem that we have. You know, if you look at our population over the past decade, I think 50 out of the 83 counties reported a population decrease. Um, and what was has gone up substantially during that time, especially under a Republican-led legislature, is our budget spending. And so we need to get in there and do forensic accounting on the budget. We need to cut this budget. We need to start um, looking at things and look at where the overspending is happening and cut it. 
And we need to make sure, hey, look, we're, we're still dealing with this. The governor weaponized the health department. Once that state Supreme Court ruling came down in October in 2020, she weaponized the health department. Who in the right mind would want to come back to the state of Michigan with the threat of restrictions or a lockdown during the next cold and flu season? So we need to limit government. We need to cut regulations. I've been talking to small farmers all throughout the state of Michigan right now, and they always bring up Tennessee. You know, it's so much easier for them to go operate and build a farm down in Tennessee because there's not as many regulations in Tennessee as there's in Michigan. So, again, we need to get government's boot off our throat. So we cut regulations, lower corporate tax. And the biggest thing that we need to start talking about, a lot of people aren't, is long-term energy-dense solutions. Our whole automobile fleet is going to be plugged in in 2030 and 2050, and solar and wind is not going to get the job done. We have the largest storage capacity for natural gas in the union. We need to start investing into our nuclear fleet. The reason we lost those 11,000 jobs at Kentucky and Tennessee was because energy got too gosh darn expensive. And so, again, we need to start bringing some foresight. We need to bring some entrepreneur spirit. And I always compare ourselves to Florida, Texas, and Tennessee. Now, Florida has tourism. My goodness gracious, what better state in the union than Michigan for tourism? You can come visit this state all year around. Right. So we have tourism. Texas has big oil. Well, just like I said, if we get natural gas and we start investing into our nuclear fleet, that's when we can start competing with Texas and Tennessee business friendly. If we cut regulations and we make sure that no governor can weaponize the health department, this is going to inspire businesses to come back here. And you guys know this with businesses come jobs, jobs comes families. And that's how we increase our tax revenue. But we need to start getting jobs back here. And we got to quit using taxpaying dollars to do that. Um, especially with the SOAR fund and everything else that they're doing right now. And I can understand why they want to do that, because we need a win. But we have to have some long-term solutions, and I'm the candidate that's going to enact this and get this done. Gary Kelly Cobb again. We've only got a few seconds left, but I, I wanted to highlight a, uh, the most recent poll that I've seen. Uh, you're at, I think, 13%. Tudor Dixon seems to be leading the pack, your rival, at 26%. But 33% of Republican voters are up in the air right now with only two weeks to go. How, in, a, in, a, in a, just a few seconds, how do you make up that big of a deficit? How do you get those undecideds into your camp? I tell you what, that poll was absolute garbage. Tudor Dixon was pulling <laughs> underneath. She was pulling underneath 5% just four weeks ago, and she got the, the DeVos empire behind her, and she put a little money behind commercials. But bottom line, that poll is absolute garbage. What we're going to bring to the table over the next two weeks is our unbelievable grassroots army that no other campaign has. We have already door-knocked over 50,000 doors. We've already made phone calls of 300,000 people over the last eight weeks in the state of Michigan. These are Republican, likely primary voters, and we're on track to have 500,000 voter contacts, which has never been done with the grassroots. We're also going to be on TV over the next two weeks and and dominating the airways. So um, look for us to shock the world on August 2nd, gentlemen, and I'm looking forward to it. Garrett Soldano, thanks for joining us today on the Mackinac Michigan Show. We'll be back after a brief break here on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac Michigan Show, brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jared Scorup. And we're giving away a free window decal today, a small white sticker shaped like the state of Michigan. Uh, If you'd like to grab one, text WJR to 50155. We'll drop one in the mail for you. We're going to continue our conversation about this upcoming primary here in just a couple of weeks with Caitlin Buss. She is the assistant editorial page editor at the Detroit News, and she recently did uh, the endorsements for the Detroit News. So we'll get a lot of insight as to what's happening around. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. 
So uh, for sure. So the latest polls done by the Detroit News are out. Uh, we've been parsing through that information uh, for a couple of days here. Interestingly, Biden is not seeming to pull Whitmer down in these polls. His approval in Michigan is 32 percent. That's, by the way, that's like worse than Trump's approval rating when he was president. But nobody's talking mm-hmm. about that. But Whitmer's up in these recent polls at 55 percent approval. I want to get to the endorsements, but let's start to... Uh, unpack what's going on in the governor's race here. Is there even a path to unseating Governor Whitmer for the Republicans in your mind? Um, I think if you listen to um, the general chatter and and the wisdom out there, the answer is no. Um, uh, 538 recently came out and said, you know, the race is not winnable for Republicans. Um, I think if you look at it from kind of a 30,000 foot view, um, it's hard to see a path to victory um, for anyone because she has really uh, proved to be resilient against some pretty harsh attacks. I mean, she's, you know, been <laughs> been shown to be hypocritical in certain ways. She's certainly brought out a lot of um, anger during her handling of the pandemic from, you know, business owners, individuals. Um, there's just been a lot at play, and yet it hasn't really affected her numbers. So I don't see a clear path. Um, I think when you get on the ground and you start talking to individual Michigan voters, um, you get m- more into the fact that people are a little more independently minded and are frustrated with things. Um, and they, they would be willing to, to vote for someone besides Whitmer, but they don't really see an option there. So, Caitlin, how much do you think this poll can really tell us right now? I mean, you, you've, you obviously have the governor where people has high name recognition. People are going to have their opinions on her, but they really have no clue who any of the Republican candidates actually are. Um, And so how valuable is a poll before you you have a named candidate? Um, Yeah, I think think it's, you know, I I find value in the poll. I think these polls are always valuable. But to some extent, this is just kind of going to work itself out once a candidate does win, you know, and eventually there will be a candidate and some of that will, some of the, you know, normal politicking of a primary will, will settle out. Um, and then we'll see. But, um, the interesting thing, you know, is, uh, the Detroit News did another poll kind of, um, a one-to-one, you know, with Whitmer, um, of the GOP candidates. And that had, you know, arguably the most extreme far-right candidate winning. Um, So there's really, I mean, everyone's been saying this. It really still is a toss-up. Honestly, someone else could get in the race right now at this point and maybe win it. Um, So we'll just have to see. Yeah, and to your point, Caitlin, I I was looking at the unknowns uh, in the Detroit News poll, and just an incredibly high percentage of people who still don't even know who these Republican candidates are. They just have not been hitting the ground and doing the field work and running the ads like you typically see in a primary. Um, mm-hmm. And the undecided, I was also looking at this MERS poll that came out. Uh, that has Tudor Dixon at a lead with 26% of the vote. The other candidates are sort of between 13 and 15%. The undecided vote is 33% of Republicans, and we have two weeks to go to a primary. I just mm-hmm. don't, are people just going to walk in and sort of like with their gut check a box if they don't even know who some of these people are? You know, it, we'll have to see. I mean, um, there has not been much leadership, you know, from the state part, from the Republican Party at the state level on this. Again, that's somewhat falling in line with their process. You know, they don't want to get behind a candidate. Um, 
But there is that opportunity. I mean, Michigan has a large number of uh, independent voters. And then even, you know, on this Republican side, a lot of people still out there trying to make up their mind and they're just not being provided um, the content to really help them with that. None of the candidates have had the funding or the, um, yeah, the aggressive, you know, get out the vote effort. Um, I think, you know, Garrett Soldano has had a lot of that and we see him actually campaigning. Cooter has, has had a lot of that. Um, but again, there's not a lot of yard signs, you know, there's not that traditional stuff. So, um, there, there's one more debate. Um, you know, the news has been, um, following the races and, and reporting on them. Um, but it's really up to these candidates now at this point to get their own voices out there and, and tell voters why they should even care. So, Caitlin, the, the governor, uh, she just signed a budget that was almost unanimous, Republican, Democrat. She's working the Republican House and Senate. Really smooth budget process. Um, mm-hmm. This past week, she floated out some uh, relatively soft, but criticism of the Biden administration over uh, the emergency declaration in, in Gaylor that she had asked for that they declined. Um, and her first ad came out and talked about balancing the budget without hiking taxes. Uh, what party mm-hmm. is she running? Uh, <laughs> is she running for? <laughs> yeah, no, we've seen a a real change uh, in in campaigning and just her overall presentation. I think in the past week, you you said it well. Um, you know, she's also come out um, with with what, in my opinion, was more of a. Um, uh, a softer, you know, more feminine face. She's got her daughters out there now with her. She's really taken this um, abortion mantle on and, and, and you know, did a, a, an exclusive about that. Um, there's, you know, chatter that, that her eyes are moving past Michigan, which maybe they always have been. Um, I think that's perhaps why we're seeing some distance from Biden now. Um, you know, she was very chummy with him before, but um, seeing where his future is headed, uh, she has her own ambitions in mind. Um, so, you know, she still has that responsibility to help the Democrats pull through on this statewide ticket, but that's going to be seemingly easier and easier uh, as the days go on. And she's got some free time to start thinking about the next moves, I think. So um, moving down ballot a little bit, um, we'll, we'll be, I guess, rolling the dice on the, on the governor's race, but, uh, or at least in the primary. What are some of the more interesting or competitive down ballot races you are seeing for Congress, State House, State Senate? I know that you and the Detroit News put together the endorsements recently for the primary. What are some of the races that stood out to you? Um. Well, there were there are so many, and with redistricting, it's really been um, quite an interesting process to mm-hmm. see where some of those traditional, um, you know, political rivalries or or longstanding elected officials have had to, you know, move or shift course. We saw that a lot with the congressional redistricting. So some of those races, um, you know, when we did our endorsements, for example, in the 10th, 11th, you know, 12th and 13th district, we really focused on the the Metro Detroit area. Um, you know, in, in the 10th district, for example, the, the big one is really who's, you know, the Republican nominee on that side. And, and, you know, we went with John James, um, in the 11th district though, you have the Democrat race really, you know, bringing intrigue out, um, Andy Levin versus Haley Stevens. And in, and, and in both of these, you know, with both parties, we really went for who is looking to be a moderate voice, who is looking to work past you know, the partisan extremism that we're seeing. Um, and these races are all, you know, there's competitive angles in all of them right now. So it was really um, a fun process to go to go through. 
um, some of the districts in Detroit have been redrawn with, you know, huge implications. Um, and the other thing is there's a ton of candidates running, like, like more than we've ever seen wow. in, in all the races. So um, there's a lot of competition. It's a good ability to analyze people, I think, from a fresh perspective. We have some new blood getting into these races um, in the 12th district and the 13th. Um, some really exciting candidates that, that it was fun to look at. So I really encourage people to look at our endorsements. You know, we spent a lot of time on them and, and really tried to give everyone a fair shake. Um, you know, when you look at some of the smaller races, again, you just had a ton of candidates running. So, for example, in Macomb County, there's just, you know, a, a lot of people running. Um, a lot of the Trump uh, dynamics are still at play in some of those Republican races. And on the Democrat side, you know, it's 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 a little more one chorus, uh, but but still some competition in the, you know, Detroit area races, um, some new interesting um lineups of people so yeah. what, really, there's a lot to look at this this cycle really quickly it, it, detroit sort of got um pushed out uh by a lot of observers for the gerrymandering mm-hmm. or i'm sorry the redistricting process that took place and a lot of people feel like detroit's not going to have good representation what are you mm-hmm. watching with the race that has uh that has shri involved and a number of other candidates uh there's just a there's just a huge primary open there mm-hmm. um where did the news come down on that um, we went with Michael Griffey in that race, um, uh, mostly, you know, for his kind of pragmatic, really, uh, approach and, um, his experience, uh, you know, coming from, he's got a lot of on the ground experience that would be great, um, to get represented in, in that community. And so we found him to be a, 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 the leading nominee in that one. Yeah. You need somebody that represents the community. Exactly. Uh, Caitlin Buss. Assistant Editorial Page Editor at the Detroit News. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. And we'll be back again after a brief break with more of the Mackinac, Michigan show here on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac, Michigan show brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. I'm Jaris Cora. And we're giving away a free window decal today. It's a small white sticker shaped like Michigan. You can put it on your laptop, your water bottle, get creative. Just shoot us a text, WJR to 50155. We'll pop one in the mailbox for you. Uh, We're going to continue our conversation about the primary election just a couple weeks away with Jimmy Green. He's the president of the Associated Builders and Contractors of Michigan and has always got his ear to the ground on what's happening in politics. Jimmy, thanks for coming on. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, just to start, I um, want to get your general insights as, as to how you feel uh, statewide the electorate is swinging here. Are, are, you know, you're someone who's very politically active. You're involved. You do endorsements. We want to get to ABC's endorsements. But um, sure. we've just been going through polls and, and talking to a gubernatorial candidate. Do, do the Republicans have a shot here? Is the, rev, is the red wave a wave that's actually in Michigan as well as the rest of the country or not? I got to tell you, you know, it's interesting you should say that because I've I've had a lot of these kinds of questions. And, you know, I always say I'm going to be incredibly smart or incredibly stupid, depending (laughs) on which campaign, which race and which day. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I think Michigan is in a precarious situation right now and not one where we can fairly uh, predict whether or not we're going to miss or catch a red wave. You know, the, the cannibalization of candidates here, especially for Republicans, is like no other state. And I'm connected across the country 
primarily because I work with all the chapter presidents in all 50 states. And, I mean, they look at us like, huh? Like, you know, what's going on? And so we've got traditional Republicans versus Trump Republicans versus I don't know what kind of Republican I am Republican. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the idea of forecasting what happens, uh, especially in primaries, and, it, and they truly are a bellwether for the general election. And I got to be honest with you, I'm petrified of what's coming out of the primaries, because I don't think in many cases you're going to wind up having some primary candidates that are capable of winning general elections. Yeah, well, Jimmy, you guys were, I think you were the first prominent endorsement of Tudor we Dixon. Um, yep, we were. We were. Last in the polls when that happened, I believe, out of the candidates. Um, yep. Granted, there were 10 back then. Now there's five. And uh, mm-hmm. she's leading in the in the, uh, the the most recent polls that we have. How did you guys decide to settle on her, and how do you feel about that call? Well, first of all, I don't want to diminish her qualifications or – you know, her competency or, you know, the uh, why her credibility means so much to us. For us, quite frankly, it was 10 candidates. We looked this as we looked at the, the initial endorsement as a defensive measure. And what I mean by that is we our our emphasis was we got to keep the House and the Senate. And the only way for us to do that was to go with the best candidate who could bring out more people that Trump lost to help us in key races in the House and the Senate. There was no question in our mind that the least polarizing person was Tudor Dixon. We loved the idea she was a conservative woman. We loved her messaging. And we just felt like in key races in the West, Southeast in particular, she could bring out folks we had lost. And that would give us a defensive measure on you can lose and yet win. And then, well, as fortune would have it, maybe not somebody else's misfortune, she started picking up steam. And quite frankly, she became incredibly well-versed. She became smarter on the campaign. Uh, she started picking up momentum. Uh, it was a horse we were going to stay with and did. And so she's earned her stripes. And at this point, she deserves to be the front runner. So I, I'd like to say that we were, you know, brilliant political strategists at the time. We were defensive and uh, ultimately wound up picking the best candidate to represent ABC's message. And we think uh, give the governor one hell of a fight come November. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting. There's still a huge undecided vote out there. It's almost like a, a roll yep. of the dice here, walking into the primary mm-hmm. in just a couple of weeks. Um, what what does that spell to you uh, for down ballot races? I know you're looking at also congressional races. You looked at state yep. house, state senate. I mean, what are you feeling in all that? If if the if the governor's office is an uphill battle, uh, even for Tudor mm-hmm. or whomever, uh, what yep. does that mean for the rest of Michigan and everybody else running down the ballot? Well, you'd love to have a strong ticket at the top. You'd love to have, and, and, and I'm not conceding anything when it comes to Tudor, mm-hmm. but on the other side of that coin, you're looking at uh, DePerno and then Caramo. And mm-hmm. those are not strong candidates to support one hell of a ticket that your candidates downwind can pick up tailwinds from. That's just not going to happen. Now, that may not sound nice to a lot of people. Uh, it, it may sound defeatist, but it isn't. It's a reality. And if you have a ticket of Ryan Kelly, uh, Matt DiPerno and Christine Caramo, you're in trouble. I mean, yeah. the Republicans are essentially in, in House and Senate races and congressional races. Our advice, you're on your own. Run on issues, run on merit, run hard, run scared, uh, because you're not going to pick up those kind of tailwinds. Just mm-hmm. not going to happen. Now, again, you know, people blow smoke up people's rumps and they think like, you know, you tell them all these other things, but that's not really helping your candidates at all. I think it's, it's important to be honest. 
it's important to be uh, very forthright with them so they know what kind of campaign tailwinds they're going into. And that's our advice, that you're not going to get any help from the top unless it's with Tudor, but it's not the top of that ticket, the three, you know, the top three statewide offices that are going to carry you. Mm-hmm. Well, on the policy side, uh, Jimmy, what is ABC mm-hmm. worried about, um, depending on what type of legislature we might get next year? What, what's your guys' big concerns? Big, well, you know, first, again, it goes right back to our, my original uh, conversation, which was uh, defensive. We've had some amazing legislative victories here in the state of Michigan over the last 10, 11 years. Our whole mantra is protect the winds. So any policies that would infringe upon uh, project labor agreements, uh, would infringe upon right to work, we've already got a contest right now, which, quite frankly, we're going to be challenging uh, the governor in a lawsuit on where she reinstated state prevailing wage on some government contracts. We find that that's against the law. Now, of course, if these election campaigns, if Dana Nessel gets back into office, well, that puts us in an awkward position because she has literally vacated her role and making sure that the governor is following state law. To this very day, to this very day, the, the attorney general has not ruled rather that the governor had the right to reinstate prevailing wage, which was breaking the law as far as we're concerned. So when you talk about policy, any policies that come from there that infringe on our ability to do work in the state of Michigan under a fair and competitive environment, that's what we're protecting. And there are a whole host of policies that fall right up under that umbrella. Jimmy, just we got a few more seconds left. I wanted to ask you what the sure. state of the construction industry is generally. I know it was just like probably whiplash like everybody else, prices of everything, supply chain of everything uh, during COVID. Have things leveled out? Is, is the industry back on, on solid footing? The industry's strong. Uh, you know, we still have supply chain issues. We have workforce issues. Um, we've got those issues still out there, but quite frankly, it's strong. We've got a backlog of about two to three years. We know or suspect that there is a mild or slight recession coming, but we're going to be okay. Uh, inflation has needless to say changed the cost of construction. Uh, some of those costs are not embedded in current contracts. So we've had to reevaluate and rebid contracts based on today's inflationary rates, but the construction industry as a collective whole is strong. That's great. Inflation's taking us all down, though, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. That that roof last year that, that you uh, bid for is going to cost you about 20% more this oh, year. Oh, my God. Uh, everybody, yeah. hold on. <laughs> Was it? This is 9.1 now. Uh, Jimmy, we got to leave it there. Jimmy Green, the president of Associated Builders and Contractors in Michigan, thanks for coming on. Thank you, guys. Appreciate all you do. Thank you. And we'll be back again after a brief break with more of the Mackinac, Michigan show here on WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac Michigan Show, brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb. Hey, I'm Jared Spora. We're giving away a free window decal today. It's a small white sticker shaped like the state of Michigan. You can pop it on your water bottle, your laptop. Uh, text WJR to 50155. We'll drop one in the mail for you. We've been talking primary election all all evening now. We're going to switch gears and talk about a really interesting court case. It was just handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court. We're joined by Jason Hayes, the Director of Environmental Policy at the Mackinac Center. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Jason. 
so we had this big Supreme Court decision. Um, it was kind of lost amid the shuffle of the uh, abortion decision that came out. But this is also something mm-hmm. really significant um, from the federal on, level on down. Can you explain what the court decided? Yeah, it was uh, a lot of people tended to focus just on the fact that it was looking at air emissions in the EPA, but there was a much bigger decision or aspect to the decision in that the the court looked at the major question of what administrative agencies, what kind of powers they have to regulate. And so in this case specifically, they looked at its Section 111D of the Clean Air Act and asked, does the EPA have the broad authority to mandate state-level electricity decisions? The court said no, 6-3 against the EPA, and they ruled against it. But this major questions issue really goes to the question of whether or not federal government administrative agencies can effectively take over the job that Congress should be doing and sort of rule the country uh, you know, without congressional approval. It was a fascinating case, uh, and I agree with you. Really, everybody read it as uh, dealing a blow to really Obama and Biden's climate change agenda. Um, mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, this 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 ruling essentially said that any agency uh, does not have total discretion to enact broad regulations on these big, huge issues if they have big political or economic consequences, especially if Congress just never said, you you have the authority to do specifically that. And I found it interesting. It was the same doctrine that this court applied that they also applied in January when they shot down the vaccine mandate that Biden wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on what this means for federal agencies going forward? Do you think we're going to get a lot more uh, cases being brought against the federal government saying, hey, these regulations, you know, whether it's, I don't know, USDA and food or if it's, you know, uh, you know energy like it was here or even education, just that, that these sort of top down mandates that you're deciding on these big sweeping ideas uh, are not OK. Yeah, absolutely. There will undoubtedly be uh, additional litigation coming up. In the cases, uh, there's there's discussion over FERC, the Federal Energy Re- Regulatory Commission, uh, whether they can make rulings on certain energy things. Uh, like you already said, um, you know, in COVID regulations, they're bringing up: Are they going to start litigating over that? But there was some some interesting or even amusing lines from. Justice Roberts' rulings, and then an even better one from Justice Gorsuch. So Justice Roberts' ruling, uh, the majority opinion, said that they were speaking specifically where these federal agencies tried to assert what he called extravagant statutory power over the national economy. So he said that these federal agencies have only the powers given to them by Congress, And enabling legislation, he's he's a quote here, he said, generally not an open book to which the agency can add pages or change the plot line. So he said they have to point to clear congressional authorization for whatever power it is they're they're claiming. And so Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion was the the amusing bit, taking a a definite swipe at uh, a popular quote from President Obama, where Gorsuch Mm -hmm. said, the Constitution does not authorize agencies to use pen and phone regulations as substitutes for laws passed by the people's representatives. 
So as you would expect, when they read that, the progressive Greens, their heads exploded. They were not happy with this. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that they were. And um, it is fascinating to watch how this will unfold um, with other other cases being brought up against it. Um, uh, but in the meantime, just very specifically and quickly, uh, this basically set back the climate change agenda. Do you have any insight as to where that might be headed next? Well, I'm sure what it did is it uh, caused uh, disruption throughout the EPA because what what has happened is the Obama administration passed the Clean Power Plan. That got kicked back uh, as unacceptable. It was stayed by the Supreme Court back several years ago, and I think it was 2014. And uh, so as a replacement, the Trump administration put out something called the ACE rule or the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, which was supposed to replace the Clean Power Plan. On Trump's last day in office, uh, the U.S. District Court kicked that one out and said that's not any good. So then the, uh, the Biden administration came in and they were reworking and kind of coming up with a new rule. Now, there's no doubt that, uh, like, I'm, I wasn't sitting in the back room, so I don't know the specifics of what they were writing, but they were right in the midst of rewriting something that was similar to the Clean Power Plan. That's going to have to be taken back to first principles. Again, mm. just given the, the nature of this ruling, there's no way that they could do kind of Clean Power Plan 2.0. They were going to have to redo it based solely on this this ruling. There's no way that they can try to do that expansive takeover of the nation's economy the way that the Obama Clean Power Plan did. So, yeah, it, it undoubtedly shook them up. Jason, that's uh, that's fascinating. We'll see what happens next. Jason Hayes, we got to leave it there, Director of Environmental Policy at the Mackinac Center. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, that's all the time we have here on the Mackinac and Michigan show tonight. You can check out this show and all our others by heading to frankbeckmancenterforjournalism.com or thegreatvoice.com. Thanks for listening and have a good night. Opinions heard in the preceding program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of Cumulus Media or WJR Radio.